my dad loves Christmas. Loves Christmas. Anybody else have a parent who just absolutely goes bonkers at Christmas time? Raise your hand. You got a parent to go. Okay, great. Um, my, my Paul, my daddy, he takes care of millions of details so the grandkids will have a very exciting, wonderful Christmas celebration. He sets up his snowy village every year. It's just amazing. He decorates all of the tree. He keeps plenty of warm fires going. Always has hot chocolate and candy canes on hand. He, um, he looks for goofy little things that will fascinate the kids. Like the year that he found this little perpetual motion skiing village where they just went over and over and over, and I spent, the children, I mean, spent hours just watching that. It was just so cool. Um, my dad gives extra money to his church every Christmas. They sacrifice a lot of extra hours in December at this food ministry where they serve. And I once asked my dad why he likes Christmas so much. He said something to this effect. Paul said to me, Wayne, I'm, I'm free to give. After all, think of what Jesus freely gave for me. And that really exposes why my Paul loves Christmas. He is a free giver. He doesn't sacrifice because of compulsion. He gives out of gratitude. He knows how much has been given to him, and he can't help but do good to others. And Christmas just provides a perfect opportunity for him to give. That attitude is very similar to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Open your Bible to Galatians 6 where we learn about giving and doing good to others and not merely at Christmas time. Uh, verses 1 through 5 work as a unit, so we're going we're gonna to read those together to start our discussion. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching, over, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Stop there. As you'll see in our bulletin notes, you got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open that up. Look inside on the left-hand side. You'll see that Paul just declared that we have freedom. We have freedom to do good inside the church. We have freedom to do good inside the church of Jesus. Six particular commands comprise God's instruction here. First, engage in the restoration of Christians. Paul uses brethren again. That's a term he only uses of men and women who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. It is his favorite transition word in Galatians. A lot of transitions set up with the word brethren in Galatians. He says then, if, brethren, if, and by the way, that if should probably be translated when, because in Greek it's something called a first-class condition which means it's something that will happen, okay? This is something that is going to happen. So, brethren, when a brother is caught in some form of sin, and there was a long list of sin that it was detailed for us up above in chapter 5, when they're caught in sin, you who are spiritual are to restore him. Now, look at this. You who are spiritual is one word in the Greek, pneumatikoi. Pneumatikoi describes a person who is characterized by God's Spirit. Back in chapter 5, these people were described as, as walking by the Spirit, being led by God's Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Look at this, parallel passage in 1 Corinthians, okay? In 1 Corinthians and here, Paul sets a really nifty contrast, Galatians 5 and 6 and 1 Corinthians. In each case, pneumatikoi are contrasted with sarkikoi, okay? You're two fancy words for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, say sarkikoi, one, two, three, sarkikoi, all right? This is what sarkikoi are. They are fleshly motivated, worldly-minded Christians. These are Christians, but they're very fleshly motivated. They can't, they can't handle the truth. They can't handle the truth because they are spiritually immature. They're concerned with status. 
They're concerned with self-gratification. Contrast that with pneumatikoi. On the count of three, you can say pneumatikoi. One, two, three, pneumatikoi. Pneumatikoi, excuse me, are spiritually empowered, scripturally-minded Christians. They enjoy the truth because they're spiritually maturing, and they are concerned with serving God and serving others. So verse 1 calls the pneumatikoi to help restore wayward sarkikoi. I think the Baptist teacher, Timothy George, summarizes the idea in Galatians 6.1 really nicely. Look what he says. While all sin is detestable before God and should be resisted as a plague, certain transgressions are especially hurtful to the fellowship of the church and must be dealt with according to the canons of Christian discipline. Those who are spiritually minded, that is, those whose lives give evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, have a special responsibility to take the initiative in seeking reconciliation, restoration and reconciliation with those who have been caught in such an error. Close quote. But how can that restoration happen? Okay, pneumatikoi are supposed to help restore sarkikoi. How? The Bible is actually very clear on the process. Matthew 18, other scriptures lay it out. It's very simple. Let me show you a simple flow chart, okay? You got a brother who is in sin. He's committed to sin. Another brother or sister in Christ confronts him, speaking the truth in love. If that person repents, great! That, that step, by the way, takes care of most sins. Somebody just tells them, hey, that's wrong. But if the brother continues to shake his fist at God, you go to the next step. He is then pursued by two pneumatikoi. If he repents, great! If not, if he shakes his fist at God, you go to the next step. The elders reason with him then. If he then repents, great! If not... A church gathering is informed of his commitment to sin. If he repents, great. If not, he becomes like a tax collector to you. That doesn't mean some kind of weird shunning. That's an Amish idea. That's not a biblical idea. It means to become like a tax collector, somebody with whom you have to deal but with whom you would never fellowship, right? Okay, sorry for those who work for the IRS, but that's the idea in the Scripture. Sadly, yeah, I'm from the IRS. Sadly, Few churches today actually follow God's instruction on this. You attend, the, you attend the sadly rare fellowship that takes this seriously. And it's the main reason that we encourage church membership. This is for the church family. Among those churches who do practice biblical restoration, I want to share some good news with you, okay? Here's what I observed, and this is from a great deal of observation. About 70% of those who are confronted about sin repent at that first level. This is so cool. I, I have been that person. I have been that person who has had a brother or sister in Christ come to me and say, hey, what you're doing is not scriptural. That's not right. Your attitude is wrong. And I have changed my mind. I have repented and let God's spirit change me. It's just, it's a beautiful process. You likely have had the same experience. In fact, let's just do a quick survey. If you have ever had any brother or sister in Christ confront you about sin and you, and you changed, you repented. I'm, I'm talking not just... You're reading the scripture and the Holy Spirit convicts you. That's wonderful. But outside of that, some person came to you and said, hey, that's, that's not on target. And you changed your mind. Raise your hand right now. You've ever repented of sin? Look, raise them really high. Look around. Look at that. Just look. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Two th- three quarters of the whole congregation here. That's just awesome. It's beautiful. Uh, almost 70% respond when a person points out sin. Okay, then what I've seen is another 30% and this is what I've heard from other pastors, of, the, of that remaining 30% who are committed to sin. Another 30% respond when the two people come to them and engage them in the truth. When it goes to the elders, most churches see another 30% repent when it goes to the elders. Now, at this church, for the 20 years of this church, we have actually seen over 50% 
respond in repentance when they have been confronted at the elder level. And usually that means we set up a restoration team for them because when it gets to the elder level, by that point, the people have become very adept at living their lie and they need to reshape their whole life and it's an honor to help them do that. We have seen over 50% respond uh, at that point. So look what we got. Okay, take 100 Christians. You got 100 Christians who have shaken their fist at God and just dedicated themselves to sin. 70 of those 100 responded when just any brother or sister said, hey, that's wrong. 10 more repented when two of their friends stepped in. And at Frisco Bible Church, we've seen 10 more repent when they were confronted by our elders. That's a recovery rate of 90%, folks. And it's beautiful to watch it in practice. It's just, it's beautiful. The word restore is fascinating in the original writing. Paul uses katartizo. Uh, it's a term from mathematics. Um, it means to make the numbers add up. Isn't, isn't this cool? So when you pneumatikoi are restoring somebody in your life group or your Bible study or among your friends, you're helping them learn math. That's what you're doing. Think about what we do when we're committed to sin. When we're committed to sin, what do we do? We fudge the numbers of our life, right? We know. We know when we're sinning, that we're going against God's word. We almost always know that. The Holy Spirit convicts us, and we know it. So what we do is we rewrite the numbers so that we can have something that makes us feel better about our desires or our fears. We warp and twist Scripture. We pretend that 2 plus 2 equals 7, right? It is so incredibly inane, but we do it anyway. You know, the only ones I really worry about <clears throat> are the people who actually live that lie successfully. Thankfully, most of you are very bad liars. Um, most of us are bad liars. We can't say 2 plus 2 equals 7 with a straight face, but some can, and they do. In fact, they, they can convince others that right and wrong are inverted. Of course, eventually they get caught. The, nobody's lies work forever. The, the job of healthy Christians is to correct these tough nuts once their sin is exposed. Look what Paul says when they inevitably are caught in wrongdoing. Happens to everybody. This is a theme in Mark Twain's brilliant book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Uh, Tom Sawyer is not just a cute little story about a kid painting fence. There's real thought going on in Tom Sawyer. And, and, and here's what you see. When you read the story, you see Tom wants biblical glory. He really does. But he's unwilling to live by Scripture. However, most of the Christians in his town are unable to help Tom. They can't help him grow up because they are sarkikoi themselves. When Tom undergoes change in the book, it's because he reaches a point where he can't peddle his lies any longer. He can no longer talk his way out of something. He literally, in the story, gets trapped in a cave. But Judge Thatcher and Widow Douglas and the other people in the book that are true pneumatikoi, they genuinely love Tom. They spiritually love him, and they guide him, and that changes him. That's what we're free to do as well. We get to guide each other out of caverns of sin and back into the light of redeemed community. After all, Paul says this is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Did you see that? Second time in the letter, Paul has referenced the law of Christ. He's referring to Jesus' new law, the law of love. Uh, verses 34 and 35 of John 13. Read it with me, please. You take the underlined text. I give you, Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved think, think about that for a minute. Just as I've loved you. Do you realize what, what, what did Jesus do for you? What did he do? He died for you and he rose from the dead. So, so when he says, just as I've loved you, he's calling for me to die for you and maybe what is even more difficult, to live for you, right? That's awesome. It can only be done by God's grace and power. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. What was it again, everybody? What was it? Love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How does Paul say we fulfill this law of love? Look at a text. By carrying one another's burdens. For a long time now, ever since that was written, people have been trying to find ways to describe, remember, answer that call. I, I wanted to just consider a few English-speaking examples, and, I, and I've limited myself to just the, the recent modern era, 1884. James Wells, he was a leader in the United Free Church of Scotland, he wrote a book where he was trying to summarize Jesus' law of love. He was trying to summarize what Paul's saying about, about in, this instruction of carrying one another's burdens, and he wrote a fascinating passage. Look what he wrote. He said, I met a wee girl walking the downs path carrying a very great baby bairn, baby boy. Watching her struggle with the load, I asked if she wasn't tired. Surprised, she replied to me, he ne heavy, he's me brother. He's not heavy, he's my brother. Forty years after that, Kiwanis Magazine published a column by Roe Fulkerson titled, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. That year, Father Flanagan adopted that as the logo for his boys' town that he opened to help children who didn't have families. Forty-four years after that, 1968, Bobby Scott and Bob Russell wrote a song together about the law of love in Galatians 6. These were believers in Christ. They wrote this song because they were trying to find a way to capture the idea of Galatians 6. In fact, what motivated them to write it was Bobby Ross was dying of cancer. And they were, they were trying to write about the friendship of how you, how you walk with somebody you love through hell of cancer. They called the song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. It was recorded by a number of different people. It became a huge hit for this band, The Hollies. Here's the lyrics. Only those of you of a certain age know this song, but... Um, but the rest of you should know the lyrics. These are really, really good. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where, who knows when. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. So on we go. His welfare is of my concern. No burden is he to bear. We'll get there. For I know he would not encumber me. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. If I'm laden at all, I'm laden with sadness that everyone's heart isn't filled with the gladness of love for one another. It's a long, long road from which there's no return. While we're on the way to there, why not share? And the load doesn't weigh me down at all. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Amen? Now, of course, you and I know... You and I know that in our own strength, we can't actually carry each other's burdens, right? They, they really are too heavy for us. But pneumatikoi, people of the pneuma, of the spirit, by the power of God's spirit, we can do all things. I can do all things through Christ. Notice the end of verse 1, the very end of verse 1. Uh, Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. We can't do anyone else any good if we aren't taking care of ourselves. I must watch myself lest I become tempted to give in to sin myself. That's the third big idea. By the way, we listed on the right side of your notes uh, as watch ourselves. When I trained lifeguards, this was a big issue. You cannot save anyone else if you need rescued yourself. When I was at the Red Cross, um, we taught our guards. We taught our guards that it is better to have one person drown than for a lifeguard who is not in a position of safety to get into the water because it's better to lose one person than two. I know that sounds harsh, but the idea is scriptural. Listen, self-sufficiency is a myth that mistakes pride for bravery. 
I remember the time I forgot this lesson and I didn't look to my own help. An old guy at the water park where I was working, he was in the wave pool, uh, he slumped over all of a sudden in the deep part of the wave pool. I'd been watching him for some time. I'd been trying to get his attention to get him to the side. It was obvious he was struggling, and, and he finally just gave up, and I knew I had to go in and get him. I, I blew my whistle to alert the guard, thank God, to alert the guard who was on the same side as I was, and I went in the water, and I just swam up to this guy and didn't do any of the safety precautions that I had hammered into other people that they were supposed to do. I didn't reverse when I got near the guy. I didn't go underneath and get him from under the water where it's safe because the guy was totally out of it until he wasn't. As soon as I got right up to this guy and about to touch him, he came alive out of the water and thrashed his arms. And his right hand hit me right here in the temple and I lost consciousness. When I came to, there was a guard standing over me on the deck who had taken me out of the pool, and there were two other guards that had taken the old guy to the side. Listen, if you get careless, if you get exhausted, if you start operating in the flesh like a sarkikoi instead of in the spirit like a pneumatikoi, then we're going to have to rescue you as well as the brother you were carrying, right? That's the thinking behind verses 3 through 5. You and I can't get deluded into thinking that we're something special, that we're supermen or wonder women who can rescue everybody else. In fact, we are nothing without God's grace. We need to constantly check our own hearts and teach others to do the same. Listen, verses 4 and 5 in the New Living Translation puts it this way. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself. That's the key idea. Comparison is always the language of the devil. You won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Be sure to catch that last idea. We don't do anyone any good if we encourage people to become black holes of perpetual neediness. God's restoration is no burden, but it is restorative. The church is not a perpetual welfare state, and anyone who thinks that it is needs to watch themselves. They need to pay careful attention to their own work. Now, Read verses 6 through 8. This is our fourth command. It'd be in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. The one who is taught the message must share all good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Fourth command. Freely share. This was the thinking behind another great 19th century uh, story, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I want to tell you about a scene that is not often seen in the modern play. They don't often show this scene. Um, in the scene where the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge to his nephew Fred's Christmas party. Okay, it's usually cut off there. But in the book, Scrooge begs to be allowed to stay at that party. He wants to stay and watch Fred's party. But the ghost of Christmas present, the spirit, refuses because... And this only makes sense if you know Galatians 6. Because Scrooge has two starving children that live under his coat. He never had eyes to see them before, but they've always been there. They've been there for a long time. And these unwelcome little demonic guests are named ignorance and want. Now, what makes this so shocking in the story is Ebenezer Scrooge is incredibly well-educated. He is very wealthy. Why would, why would he carry around ignorance and want all the time? Because he doesn't share. He doesn't give to God's teachers. He doesn't give to God's causes. Scrooge sows only to his own flesh, and thus he reaps 
ignorance, and want. Now, most of you know the story from Dickens' Christmas Carol. What is the exact thing that Scrooge does once he repents and the spirit of Christmas yet to come gives him a second chance? What's the first thing he does? What does he do? He gives. In fact, the first scene you see is him throwing money out his window. He gives freely. And it wasn't just for one Christmas. The book makes it clear that Ebenezer, his name is Hebrew for remember. Ebenezer is the Hebrew word for remember. He remembers that he is supposed to make giving part of his lifestyle for the rest of his days. And you know what God does? God keeps making him wiser and wealthier. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team sent me a great note about these verses. Look what Cindy wrote me. She said, Wayne, we need to live our lives with our hands open, letting the blessings and timing of our Abba come and go through our lives. So often, open hands refers to someone who's continually taking, consumed with what is mine, what I can get, what I can keep. I see it instead as living unfettered, free, liberated, living open-handedly. We should be individuals who know all is well, regardless of how it looks, because we know that our Abba has it all covered, and he always will, close quote. Amen? Verse 9, fifth command, take a look at verse 9. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Uh, in my old Bible, in my office, um, I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote in the margin here uh, something that I put in your notes. I wrote, look to the end results. Look to the end results. Because this is very likely describing glorification rewards. By the way, it's another example of Paul deftly covering all of salvation in one letter. In Galatians, he's covered justification and sanctification and now glorification. The Lord may or may not make me wealthy here, whether I give or not. But... At the judgment seat of Christ, there is no question. When I freely give here because I can, because I'm free to, I build up rewards for eternity. Look at my dad's quote that, that we talked about earlier. My dad, I'm free to give. After all, think of what Jesus freely gave for me. That's the attitude of Galatians 6, 9. That is looking to the beginning and the end of the story for my marching orders now. So don't grow weary. Keep doing good. Final admonition in this section, verse 10. Let's read 9 and 10. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. That's why we called this section is about doing good in the church. It's our first priority is the household of faith. Now, see the clause, work for the good of all? Critical Christian distinctive. The Greek word is ergotsomai. Uh, it's where we get our word ergonomics. Uh, ergonomics has to do with work, with, with effort. I recently participated in an international summit of faith at work, and this topic came up a lot in our faith at work summit. Um, Christians certainly prioritize their brethren, verse 10, but we also work, look at your text, we labor for the good of all. We see our work as a way to fulfill God's command to keep on doing good. I know, I know work is tainted by sin, this side of the garden, I understand, but it is still a blessing. Overall, work is not a burden. It, it is something that allows us to focus on others and show amazing creativity. Tracy Bush of our team recently shared with me a great section. This is from John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? Okay, and I wanna, I wanna start with a section where Ortberg is quoting somebody else, okay? So this is a quote from Viswal Mangalwadi. Uh, he's a very brilliant uh, Indian Christian, religious thinker, philosopher, and, and he says this, look, while the technology for many inventions was observed around the world across the centuries, it was developed and harnessed most often by Christians. 
The theological factor that drove technology was that the Bible distinguished work, to work is to be like God, from toil, which is the curse of sin. Therefore, using creative reason to liberate people from toil is part of the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, Ortberg goes on, John Ortberg in his own voice, he says this, that is why, even though the horse was not native to Europe, it was European peasants who leveraged the horse through the invention of the horseshoe, the tandem harness, and the horse collar. The, the first recorded use of the windmill to grind grain was by Abbot Gregory of Tours in the 6th century. He did it to free the monks so they could pray. He goes on. Yaroslav Pelikan, one of my favorite historians, argued that contrary to a common assumption that the Renaissance arose when thinkers rejected faith and returned to classical Greco-Roman skepticism, the renewal was actually stimulated by desire to read the New Testament in Greek by thinkers like Erasmus. The Renaissance, wrote Conrad Burdach, which establishes a new concept of humanity, of art, of literary and scholarly life, arose not in opposition to the Christian religion, but out of the full vitality of a religious revival, close quote. His point is, all of history has been changed because Christians worked for the good of all, as Galatians 6, 9 commands. And that idea of doing good to all bridges Paul into his last section. Let's read the very last section of the book, verses 11 through 18. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Um, quick aside, in the classical world, important letters, and nothing is more important than God's own word being written, important letters were usually dictated. Okay? The, the, the person giving the letter would dictate to a scribe who, who had varying levels of input in the letter. Some were all the way to, to co-authors, and, and, and he, would, he would dictate the letter. And then at the end, when the scribe got to what was the end of the, of the communication, the person would take the stylus himself and write in his own handwriting the last couple of sentences so that everybody would know this really was from that important person. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Uh, look at what large letters I use. I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid persecu being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. However, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Christ. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Here's the other side of the truth. We have freedom to do good to those outside the body of Christ. Paul discusses three specifics that can help us do what God wants, that can help us live out our freedom with good works. These three things are especially significant for your interactions with people who are not yet Christian. First thing, most important thing, major on the cross. Follow Paul's logic here. Legalists always want to mess up Christian lives. They take circumcision or, or some other external thing, and they make it into a bunch of rules that supposedly determine who's really a Christian and who's not. Now, think, doing so, these legalists who confuse God's justification by grace, they do something really nasty. You know what they do? They reduce Christianity to the level of all the other world religions. You see, every worldview that believes in a perfect eternity thinks that the human has to earn his way there. She must climb the stairway to heaven. The, the methods are different, right? The methods are different, but the, but the means is the same. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, 
all the same. Salvation is earned, but Christianity is completely different. Our good works come after we're saved, not before. Our efforts come out of gratitude for being made right with God, not in order to get right with God. Remember how Paul put it earlier in the letter, Galatians 2, verse 16. Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by what, everybody? Faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Close quote. In Paul's day, the, the Judaizers added legalisms like circumcision into faith so they wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews for preaching grace. Now, in our day, the legalisms are different, but the point's the same. The point's the same. They always change the gospel so that it fits in with culture. It becomes something to earn, just like all the rest of world thought. And they don't even follow their own rules. They just want to be prideful about how robust they are, supposedly earning their justification before God. Well, in reality, they are trapped under the bondage of legalism. And they ruin good things, things like circumcision, which is, can be a very good thing. They turn good activities into means of salvation instead of healthy disciplines that are supposed to be lived out to praise the God of grace. The answer to all this is to major on the cross. It is Jesus' work on the cross that allows me to be justified, not any work of mine. The cross is what sets me free because there Jesus paid a debt that I owed but I could not pay. He sets me free, paying the justice price in his body so that I could receive God's grace. There is no room for legalism at the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection is enough. Nothing else adds to it. This world system is dead to me and I to it because I recognize that Jesus paid my way. I trust him and I am saved. No other contribution is needed for my justification. Not my meditation, not my good works, prayers, nothing. If you want to do good for non-Christians, please major on the cross. Look, look at how Martin Luther put it almost 500 years ago in his wonderful uh, commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther said this, Let us learn, therefore, to magnify this our liberty, which no emperor, no prophet or patriarch, no, nor any angel from heaven obtained for us, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by whom all things were created, both in heaven and earth, which liberty he has purchased with no other price than with his own blood, to deliver us, not from any bodily or temporal servitude, but from a spiritual and everlasting bondage under most cruel and invincible tyrants, to wit, the law, sin, death, and the devil, and so to reconcile us to God his Father. Close quote. Luther says, let us learn to magnify our liberty by majoring on the cross. I get letters every week from church consultants who tell me that our fellowship, this fellowship, needs to look and sound more like the world so that people will want to come here and feel at home here. I get told this every single week, and it is the biggest load of baloney. Look, I don't know what consultants do all week, but I'll tell you what I do every month. I watch people receive God's justification by grace. Every month, I take people to the cross, and I am blessed to watch them trust in Jesus. And when I get to chat with them afterwards, they always say something like this. They say, I came because I knew you guys are different. I knew I needed something. I, I didn't know to call it God's grace, but I'm so glad I found it here. At church and in all your relationships, be who you are. Don't try to blend in with all the rest of the world just to avoid persecution or just to be popular. Major on the cross. 
Speaking of persecution, if you want to love people outside the church, remember this. Remember, suffering is involved. That's what Paul was referencing in verse 17. Some of you may have, uh, I know many of you uh, were raised in Catholic churches, and you may have been taught um, a silly nonsense that was popular with certain medieval churchmen. Uh, I just want to put you straight. Paul did not have a magical set of stigmata appear on his body where he had on his body appear the wounds of Christ. That, that is not what's going on here. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was stoned. He was even tried in a number of courts because, because he cared enough to speak the truth in love about the cross. He was scarred because he shared God's grace. And that is exactly what Jesus promises all of his followers. Remember what he said when he sent out the original disciples? And this has remained true to this day for everyone who would follow Christ. Matthew chapter 10, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what, everybody? Wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts, scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. This, my friends, is the norm for Christ's followers, rejection. But it's worth it. When you get to be a part of a person coming to faith in Jesus, it is worth all the rejection and the pain. I know it sounds odd, but it's true. To see somebody adopted into God's family is worth all the mess that it took for them to get there. Th think about parenting, and you'll get a little hint of how the suffering is worth it. Parenting is hard, is it not? Please say yes. Yes, it is. But it's worth it. it Coca-Cola produced a great television ad that illustrates this very nicely. This was only aired in Argentina, but I want you to see it. Take a look. There's a light, a certain kind of light that never shone on me. I want my life to be the world God does it to find. I think that's worthy of applause, don't you? All these people that you build relationships with, all these people that you bring to church, they don't know, they don't know real love. They don't know God's love. They don't know what it's like. Therefore, it is worth all the suffering in order to see some of them brought into God's family. All God's people said, amen. amen. So, major on the cross. Remember, suffering is involved. And thirdly, share grace. Read our very last verse of Galatians again. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. My friend Lynn Matei was so moved by verse 18 that she wrote this poem. I really like this. Lynn read Galatians 6.18 and then she wrote this. Like the wind that whispers in the very tops of the trees. A mystery. Smooth, deep, unmerited. Whispering to my heart. Grace. 
God's grace is what moves us. So that's what we should share. It's the greatest thing we have to share. It is the best gift we have to give. Christian artist Rich Mullins was thinking about all this when his nephew was born. And so he sat down and he wrote a song for Aiden, his nephew. It's a prayer that his nephew would share God's grace. Look what he wrote. Let mercy lead. Let love be the strength in your legs. And in every footprint that you leave, there'll be a drop of grace. That well said. That is my prayer for myself. That is my prayer for every one of you. That each footprint we make will contain grace. Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will use our freedom to do good, that we'll use the freedom we have in Christ to care enough to do good for those inside and those outside your family. And Father, I pray for anybody who's studying with me that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, who is not inside your family, I, I, I beg you to draw them to you right now. Listen, friend, listen, I love you enough to tell you the truth. You are a sinner, period. It's a biblical fact. You are not holy. God is. That means you're separate from him. But you know what he did? He loved you so much that he came in Jesus the Son. He came to this earth and was born as a human to experience every aspect of humanity, lived a perfect life, died on that Roman cross, and rose from the dead so that everybody who believes in him could have everlasting life be adopted in his family all because he loves you so respond to him right now please just tell God I I don't know much Lord but I know this I know I need a savior and you sent the perfect one in Jesus the only one and I trust him alone just tell God that you receive Jesus as your savior you trust the Lord If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good for you. That's beautiful. Father, I pray for, for myself and for all these as we wrap up this study of Galatians. I was looking back over everything we've learned here, and I found myself just praising you. This, this book has written on our hearts the truth of Christian liberty. We are free, and we simply must praise you for that. Amen.